welcome to the Your Data Driven Podcast. If you like this podcast, be sure to visit our website at yourdatadriven.com for more useful help and advice on setting up your race car, mastering data analysis, and driving faster. Welcome to episode 12. In this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Peter Krauss to the show. For those of you who don't know Peter, he is absolutely passionate about using data and analytics to help you, the club racer, improve your performance. In this show, we cover a range of topics to do with why data is valuable, how you can apply it, and where to start if it's something that's new for you. So sit back and enjoy this fascinating conversation with one of the best in the business. So welcome, Peter. <laughs> Great to talk to you today. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time. It's uh, as we we discussed a little briefly, but just beforehand, it's been a, a crazy time. But um, I really appreciate you you making the time to to speak with us today. I'm sh- I'm really excited about this conversation, and what I can't mean? wait to can't wait to get into it. Um, and I hope you know the the idea. Just to frame it for you, the idea really is that for the listeners. They get one or two takeaways that may they may or may not have thought about before. In our in our case, we'll talk about data and analytics, but you can talk about anything you know to do with racing, really. And um, you know, how does that sound? Oh, that sounds wonderful. And and obviously, you know, I'm not a trained engineer, but I do work very closely one on one with drivers, and I have decades of experience doing it. And my whole goal is to turn the squiggly lines into one or two action plans. Uh, that someone can go out and focus on the very next session. And as a as a person who races historic cars and has an interest in historic cars, the goal is always to reduce risk. And and what data has been able to do, to me, is reduce risk for a lot of these folks because then we can find and focus on the twenty percent that does that they can do better and uh, jettison the eighty percent they do well. And uh, so I'm really excited to talk to you today. I really appreciate all of your efforts. Uh, your data driven uh, is is a wonderful concept because what it does is makes all of this approachable. Yeah, no, thank you very much. Because um, as I say, I think you said this as well. Sometimes you you're sharing stuff, but you don't know how it's received. So it's lovely to hear that. So thank you. Oh, it's wonderful. I mean, we we you know the whole propagation of information now is uh, sort of one person in a room or behind a microphone or behind a keyboard. And you really don't get that sense like you do addressing a group, a live group, where you can see if people are engaged or tuning out. But honestly, you know, your your postings uh, have been a beacon. I mean, a lot of people, uh, a couple of people have really come to the fore and not only made this this information and this technology more approachable and usable, but also uh, reduce the intimidation. I mean, I think I hate to rush forward, but the the idea of data for someone who is unacquainted with it can often be intimidating. And people are now very concerned about anything that might tattletale on them. But it's not a tattletale. It's a tool. You know, it's not meant to undermine. It's meant to supplement and build a foundation that allows people to make better decisions in the car. 
and and Absolutely. that's why yeah. that's why I really enjoy your posts. So. No, I think we're totally aligned on that one. I, I it's this is this is I, yeah, we are we have jumped ahead. I, I don't care. Uh, the the, <laughs> um, the 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 question I often get from people, particularly fast drivers, and again we were having this conversation the other day too about it. It was like, you know, the, the question they get is, so what, "What value is data really offering me?" Because I've done that qualifying session or I've done that race now. So what is the point of looking at the numbers? What can I? I can't go back and change it. Oh, but you can. That's that's what's wonderful about the whole thing is even at the very highest level, and I have been fortunate enough to work with drivers that have won the Rolex 24 at Daytona and won the 12 hours of Sebring. And I've even worked with a world driving champion uh, informally. And, uh, and when he was racing a historic car, not a current car. But the the issue here was... Um, no driver at any level is so consistent that they are able to, with 100% fidelity, do exactly what they want in the car on a given lap. So there will always be variances, even between the very quickest laps. And sometimes where those variances occur allow you to, again, focus on uh, on that area to become more consistent, to build a better sight picture, to build a better uh, knowledge base on what to do when you get there with the control inputs. That's a really important point that I think gets missed is that it's, and it's something I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Uh, it's about being able to improve your own ability within the car when you haven't got the data around you. Do, do you see exactly. what I mean? It's kind of like... Exactly. That's the purpose of it. It's not, yeah, you can't go back in, back in time and change what you did. No, you can't do that. But you can change tomorrow or the next session by having a better mental model of what works and what doesn't work. Exactly. And, you know, one of the people that has helped mentor me on this thinking and refine my thinking is James Colburn. And, uh, and he's, he's sort of uh, helped refresh my commitment to saying to drivers that I'm working with, hey, what is behind you is of no importance. There is nothing you can do about the corner that you messed up, but you know you messed up. Uh, or you, even at the very highest level, you know it's not as quite as good as you wanted to or could have done. And, and so all of a sudden, uh, you're not pouring over many measures. I really, really recommend people be simple about this and very targeted in their approach, uh, you know, look at, at a maximum of three measures and, and, but look at them all the time to identify specific trends. And any, any recommendations on what those measures to be? Well, I, you know, I, I think everybody has their own sort of secret sauce, but obviously the, the, the speed versus distance is number one because uh, it, it exposes so many critical best executions of fundamental skills. So that is sort of a, a motto for my business is this best execution of fundamental skills. And the, the speed versus distance is wonderful because it highlights immediately the transitions between fast and slowing and slowing and going fast again. Um, and, and so uh, the slope of the deceleration, how steep it is, how linear it may be, um, really tells a story. 
the next one would, would most likely be longitudinal G versus distance, because I want to see the acceleration and slowing, and I want to see how quickly or slowly that acceleration builds or that deceleration begins and ends. Um, the relationship of, of that, of the, the most drivers, and, and I'll tell you why I like this longitudinal G versus distance so much, most drivers know the basic line. Beyond a point, you're not working on the line. You know the points you're trying to hit. You know you're trying to utilize the full width of the road unless there is a compelling reason not to. And so for that reason, you, you now have to focus on getting to the next point as fast as you can, shedding the speed that you need, but only just the speed you need in order to enter the corner without falling off the track or missing your marks. And, and, and so the longitudinal versus G is to me, maybe the, maybe the most important after the, the speed versus distance. And then finally, um, time slip. So, so the, the, the variance or the time slip or time gap, uh, between laps that you can identify through a simple segment analysis, and it doesn't need to be many, um, to find areas of flowing brilliance. Almost every driver does laps other than their fastest lap. Uh, they do a corner better uh, on, an, on a lap other than their fastest lap. And if they can find and focus on that and then overlay that and look at the time slip, just the speed versus distance, and then generate a time slip, all of a sudden they say, you know, I thought that screw up cost me a second and it really only cost me three tenths or I'm going through this particular fast, fast section of the track and I lifted and I went slower, but yet it didn't cost me as much as I thought it did. But then I went into a slow corner and this excruciatingly slow corner and I missed the apex and I had to wait on the throttle. And my God, it cost me not only seven tenths through the corner, but an additional half a second up the subsequent straight. So all of a sudden you have this treasure trove of information that allows you to say, I can make better decisions here, here, and here. I mean, for people listening to that, I'm nodding away here. Uh, you can't see it. I'm not doing away smiling, going, uh, uh, tick, you know, tick. They're, they're the three I've written down. <laughs> and uh, there they are. They're, they're straight up. And But then you can – it's that transition from uncertainty – to having some level of objective feedback. And there's so much feedback in the paddock that is based on <laughs> wisdom, you know, and experience. And this is slightly different. And I think that's part of the message that I often end up talking to people about is that no, no, this isn't a guess, guys. This is this is physics kind of saying this is what's possible or not. It's not like we'll give this a go. It's kind of, no, no, no you've done it there. You just need to do it put all those bits together, you know, is that, have you had that experience? Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's funny you should highlight that because I think when I started doing this on a full-time basis, almost 15 years ago in, in the East coast of the United States, it was unheard of to have to hire someone at a club level to help you drive better. And I knew after listening to people for the previous 25 years, opine all kinds of different theories and feelings 
and subjective valuations of what gear someone ought to be in or what line they should take through a combination of corners, I think that that I, I became frustrated with that. And I sensed that frustration in the community that I was active in. And and so I said, okay, I'm going to I'm going to offer this. And I had a whole bunch of friends of mine tell me, you know, you're crazy. You're never going to make a living giving uh, trying to sell information that people gladly give away for free. Really? Oh man. I'm no go I just want I want to go back to where I would have started the conversation and saying, no. come on, who who are you? you know, for people who don't know, who are you? How have you got into this? I mean, they probably gathered by now you have some you know, you're, you're involved in data and motor racing at some point, but but what, how did you get to this point, and what is it that you know has led up to you do, running a very successful business that you know that you've turned into? So, what what were you doing before? Were you racing yourself? Was it a family thing? Did you have a job that was involved in analytics in some way? What was it that that, that got you involved in this kind of work? Well, that's a great question. I. I have always been interested in, in, in automobiles and, and sports cars and sports car racing. And I s- began working uh, in an imported car repair uh, dealership, a Fiat dealership back in 1981 uh, as a mechanic. And then I rapidly uh, developed a portion of that business to work on exotic cars, Ferraris, Maseratis, Lamborghinis uh, in the small town of the town that I was in, Durham, North Carolina. And, um, and then after 10 years, I went out on my own with, uh, with my business partner and for 17 years ran one of the largest independent um, uh, Ferrari and Alfa Romeo repair facilities between Washington, D.C. and Atlanta, Georgia. So most of the Southeast. And um, a big part of that was developing, my developing interest in historic sports car racing. And I had, uh, after starting with Jim Connors and autocrosses, uh, progressed to time trials, uh, or, or solo competition against the clock. And then so you were driving yourself, you were, you were competing. Yes. So I started with a very simple, very basic car that will make people laugh, a Fiat 850 spider. (laughs) And, and, you know, it wasn't very fast, but it was a momentum car. <laughs> yeah, it sounds yeah, it's Italian, yeah, <laughs> and it's Italian. And and the reason why I worked on Italian cars, I always tell people, is it was guaranteed job security. There was always something to do. To them. <laughs> so, so I I was a professional mechanic for for twenty well twenty seven years, and I had been racing for for twenty years, and I had been involved. I think the high-performance driver education, which is not something so common in Europe, although it has become uh, – the track day has become very popular in the UK. This um, is something, yeah, I, I agree with you. Since I've started doing this, the, that whole concept is it is different to a track day because there's yeah. a lot more education with it, obviously. It's in the, the, the clues in the name. But that is a new – that was a new thing for me to learn about, and I think it's a great initiative and something that more places should do, really. It's, it's, it's wonderful because the educational component is important. It sometimes can become an extension of that paddock atmosphere you talked about before. You have instructors who are very often uh, 
chosen by their lengthy experience rather than a, a you know widespread uh, well-grounded foundation but in any case when I when I was reasonably successful in the mid 2000s my business partner suggested that we expand further and we already had tractor trailers and a couple of guys and and you know, six or eight cars going to events all over the country, uh, 18, 20 times a year. And I just said, no, I don't want to, I don't want to get any bigger. And he said, well, do you want to buy me out? And I said, well, no, I'm the equity partner here. I don't have the cash. You have the cash. And he said, uh, he said, well, I'll buy you out. And it never occurred to me that I would ever do anything except be carried out of my shop in a coffin at the end of the day and the auctioneers called in. Um, but this gave me a new beginning and it, it allowed me in 2007 to say, what do I really want to do? And it was to continue my work with people who were trying to drive quicker on the track, but in an objective way. I, I love it. I love it. I, I, I it's, this is what I was hoping for. It's, it's so uh, lovely to hear the enthusiasm. It's the point about the self-coaching bit that is, I'd really like to pick up on that bit. And and also the other point you made about talking people talking down to people. And I don't know if that's a motorsports thing. I don't, I, I work in a range of different sports um, at, an Olympic and professional sports level. And I'd never see that. I never see the same kind of, I want to say attitude, but the same kind of way in which people talk to each other as I do in motor racing. And I don't know why that is. It's just, it is this kind of like, I'm better than you do as you do, as I say, kind of thing. Oh, it's exactly that. And I, 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 yeah, it's weird, huh? Well, I don't know. You know, it's it, it. I've been fortunate enough to be involved in motor racing for now close to 40 years. And I really don't see a, a big change in it. I think that, like Sterling Moss said, uh, you know, there's two things that you can't tell a man. And I, I hesitate to say that because 20% <laughs> of the people that I work with are women, you know, and they're great. Uh, but, but there's, there's two things you can't tell a man that he doesn't know how to do. And one is make love. And the other is how to drive. And, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's a sense of entitlement that people bring into this sport and also to establish bona fides, people are given to puffery. They, they exaggerate their results. They exaggerate their performance. And that's the other thing I love about data is you can't exaggerate. It is what it is. <laughs> and so, so there's nothing to hide behind. And that's, that's wonderful. I don't know whether it's something to do with the fact that most people who go onto a track, I mean, this is a sweeping generalization, so it may not be accurate, but many people, let's say, who go onto track feel that they have a particular skill or an above average ability to drive a car and to to drive it quickly and they enjoy it because it's a skill that they are good at and they're probably much much better than everyone they know who doesn't go on track absolutely and and so 
maybe that's where it comes from that kind of well I'm good I'm really good at this so you know I'm really good and then and then obviously that's where racing has come into it and going well I think I'm good at it as well let's have a go you know and then you soon find out <laughs> that's right that, 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 then there's brutal reality <laughs> the wall uh, you know gets can get hit or avoided but uh, <laughs> but but you're absolutely right and and the thing though is I think the greatest reward I've ever gotten out of this business is the people who are empire builders, sort of alpha people, people who are exceptional in other areas of their lives that allow them the success to do this on a level that they want. Yeah. um, Are used to telling, not listening. And, And there's nothing wrong with that. But the, the few smart ones realize very quickly, whoa, I am out of my depth here. I need some help. And in now in professions uh, and medicine and law and, and business, uh, it's, it's de rigueur to go out and, and hire a consulting firm or a business coach or a life coach uh, to help them. And, and, and it's become, you know, more acceptable that way. But the real charge I get out of this business is I get to work with some extraordinarily smart people, brilliant people who are exceptionally talented and very accomplished, who have had the light bulb pop on in their head saying, good Lord, I could really get hurt if I make a mistake driving as quickly as I want to drive. And and I don't want to do that. I want to be more careful about this. I don't want to be timid, but I want to be smart. And so I'm going to enlist aid, enlist resources, and I just happen to be one of those resources. And but coaching's coaching is not a traditional role within motor racing as far as I my my experiences. Yeah, so you in other sports I mean, some people question whether it's even a sport, to be honest. But in other sports, you have a coach or an instructor at all levels. Mm-hmm. And in motor racing, we don't – I think it's increasing, but it traditionally has not been the case. You, you don't say, who's your coach? No. <laughs> no, no, you don't. But but it's becoming more common that way, especially in the upper echelons of club racing – um, now, some of the some of the semi-pro or entry-level professional series in the in the U.S. in North America assign coaches to new competitors and say you have to have one. Um, the other thing is that I've been involved with organized motor racing schools uh, for more than thirty years. So Skip Barber Racing, uh, Jim Russell, many others. Uh, the 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 curriculum that that is based on a lot of new people to the sport don't ever go through an organized program so they don't ever get that foundation and that's where high performance drivers education can come in and help and that sort of thing but sooner or later the people that really want to do well and that are open to a conversation hire somebody to to come in and say Let's look at this information together and maybe you can help me. Um, for years, yeah. it was that that premise was exclusively 
underemployed professional racing car drivers. So between jobs, these underemployed uh, professional racing drivers would hire themselves out in the hopes of snagging a rich patron who would build a team around them and that sort of thing. At least that's how it works in North America or did work. And, and now I think it's much more common to see people um, form a commercial relationship with someone uh, who is respected or recommended um, to do just that, to work with them one-on-one. Yeah, we. Um, I mean, I don't know if you uh, heard the show, but I had uh, a fellow called John Kirkpatrick on uh, not so long ago, and he um, he used to run or set up the Jim Russell Racing School with Jim Russell, yeah. and we we had a fascinating conversation about the program that they used to run to develop racing drivers. It was taking people who were trying to do this professionally, but his mantra, their mantra, there was very much take the man in the street and give them the chance to go through, in this case, single-seaters. And it was a week-long program. And at the end of the program, not only have you got your race license, you actually compete in your first race. Right. And But they build it up very, very slowly in a kind of controlled environment. And it, it struck me that that is it's, – it's, co- it's not coaching – yeah, it, and maybe maybe there's a stigma that comes with the word coaching that it's just something psychological, and in racing we need to be brave and and heroic, and we don't need coaches or or people to whisper in our ears. <laughs> maybe, I mean, you know, maybe we do, but you know, no, I, 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 certainly, <laughs> I, I agree 100 percent with that. I think up until at least the last decade or so, I think coaching was a dirty word in motor racing. Now, someone could call themselves an instructor. And that was different because it wasn't, there was no hierarchy. There was just feedback and information. So Jim Russell, Skip Barber Racing, Bondurant, the rest of these professional schools had instructors. They didn't have coaches. Now everybody's a coach. So people call instructors or people who, who have good uh, basic knowledge and some experience, they call instructors coaches. But those the coaches is a much more all encompassing thing. It uh, to be a good coach requires familiarity with vehicle dynamics, with how a car is constructed, with the behavior of tires. Some instructor or some coaches, I'm sorry, focus on the mental aspect and preparation, and and most coaches do what they are interested in doing. Most coaches. Uh, say, well, I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to do a reference lap and we're going to teach you how to drive the way I do. And I don't think that's a good idea. I would prefer to optimize what the people are doing already. And it's just like John, you know, when John talked about the Jim Russell school, that was the first organized uh, school for motor racing there was. And almost everything comes from that. Um, and, and I had a, a very close friend, Peter Argetsinger from New York, who was, uh, for a short time, the chief instructor at Brands for the, for the Jim Russell, uh, school of motor racing. And, and he told me about those days and, and, uh, but the, the beauty of those schools is they honed that curriculum to take a man off the street with no knowledge and equip him with information that could serve him, uh, as a, as a, 
firm foundation if he decided to go professional motor racing. I mean, it was incredible. This zero to a thousand miles an hour. In a week. <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it was amazing. And, and unfortunately, I see now people uh, making excuses for other people. A lot of programs say, well, we can't let the novice driver go out on their own. We must accompany them. And I say, hey, all over the world, people don't accompany people. Okay, you don't you don't ride in the cars when you coach, do you? You you, you do it remote. Is that right, or do you do you go out in the car? I, I do I do not ride in in the cars, and and I had a a couple of epiphanies where I uh I've never been scared on the racetrack by myself except for a few times, but I've I've been scared more. I've been anxious and in fear for my life more than once in a student's car. And sorry, I shouldn't laugh. No, no, no. It, it is it is amusing, especially looking back on it, but it certainly wasn't at the time. <laughs> We're hurtling into the braking zone at 160 miles an hour in a Ferrari F430. And and I am acutely aware that my entire body weight is plastered forward on one single three-point street harness. Okay. And I'm sitting there saying, you know, we do this over and over and over again. One of these times there might be fluid down or he might miss the break point or we turn into a cartwheeling ball of fire. And where am I then? So <laughs> I, I, I said, I'm getting out of the car. I am. And, and that has cut me off a little bit from people early in the learning curve, because a lot of people say, you know what? I my skills aren't good enough to work with you and my organization may not allow me to drive on my own, which is unfortunate to accumulate video and data so that we can sit down and go over it. So my typical engagement is generally an intermediate to advanced uh, track day or high performance driving education driver. Some I work with a lot of instructors who are just looking for a simple yes or no answer on a question that they've been asking themselves and their colleagues for years, and, and I think I just sorry, I'm just jump in there. Yeah, but I think that's a really like that's really great to hear, and it's a really good point because even when you have the instructor or coaching label, right, you're still learning, right? <laughs> or you should be. Oh like, you don't God. know it all. I mean, like if you look at the, I mean, you know, Formula One guys, they're all sitting there looking to try and learn and improve, and they're never happy. And they, I had, um, I had the the stig on. Um, yeah. Again, uh, Perry, former, former Perry McCarthy, yeah, the yeah, Formula yeah, One driver. Yeah, yeah. And, and and he says to me, over my whole career, bear in mind he's a Formula One driver at the, at the very top level, he says to me, I've probably done one, maybe two uh, perfect laps exactly. in my whole career. Exactly, right? exactly, <laughs> exactly. These guys are hungry for information. Yeah. The good ones, you know, are hungry. Absolutely. that that That's a wonderful point. It really is. And and I tell people that all the time. I say, look, the more I do this, the less I know for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like Rob Wilson, uh, you know, another another guy that's that's sort of, uh, I don't know, one of the one of the foundations of the of the coaching sport. Ross Bentley um, did make a living. Uh, working with professional racing drivers after his professional career uh, was 
winding down from Indy cars into sports cars. Um, but he asked me, you know, in 2013, he said, you know, what's this stuff about track days and driver's education? And I said, it is much more ripe for uh, business. There are a lot more people with questions and there are a lot more people doing it. If you focus on just racing drivers, you are cutting out a large portion of the people that want this information, need this information, and will put it to good use. Yeah, and um, you know Ross. Ross is a great guy, and you, you obviously work closely with him. And we have fun. Well, we do. Yeah, because yeah, we look I, at things differently. You know, we we don't always agree, and uh, and and when we don't agree, we learn from each other. That's what's fascinating to me. The idea of being open to somebody else's experiences and approach um, can pay huge dividends. So what would you recommend if someone was trying to self-coach? So we've got our three channels and, and now they've got a session coming up and they've, you know, maybe they found some something. How would you, how do they go from what I would call, um, most people call an analysis, data analysis. I, I prefer an evaluation. Right, because you can evaluate every microscopic thing that happened all around the lap with the data and the, and the video. And, and we haven't even talked about video, but we should probably should. But there's all that sort of stuff. But there's so much information that you can evaluate and say, yeah, this is what happened and this is what the opportunities are. There, It can be overwhelming, right? So how mm-hmm. do you go from, from that to something that you can then translate into – um, behavior on the track. I mean, what what's what have you seen work, and maybe what hasn't worked? Well, I, you know, I I, I first will say that I probably, a, as you pointed out, should have brought up the importance of video. I don't do anything without video. I have to have video uh, to know for sure what is going on with the squiggly lines. You know, there are a lot of people that say, I, I, and I love your, your uh, evaluation or assessment as opposed to analysis. That is much more friendly. It's much more accurate, you know, because that's what we're doing is we're evaluating things. But if I didn't have video, um, and, and the reason why I think video is important is because I think track position is everything. Uh, I think that track position can explain what I see in the squiggly lines. I think that track... It's con- context, isn't it? I would call it context. Oh. Maybe that's a bit too... No, I think maybe it's a word, but... You're right. It's context. It is... Without that context, it's just more of a guess. Yeah. And, and so that is the reason why, to me, video is an integral part. It's not something that is important without the data, without the squiggly lines and the strip chart. I would say... I think the most important thing to do is to take three of the quickest laps and overlay the speed versus distance graphs and look at the places where they are overlapped almost perfectly and set those aside, put those to bed. Do not focus your efforts and desire and attention on those areas. On the areas where they vary significantly, those three laps, just the speed versus distance, you are identifying a geographic area 
that a variable performance. And the goal is always to reduce the variable performance. And people say, you know, well, I'm, I think I'm just driving to the limit and not beyond. And I say, well, still, if you drive to the limit, you're still going to be better in most areas than some areas. And we need to find and focus those some areas first. And we need to fix those things. This, this is a guide. This is a roadmap to help you decide where to focus your efforts on next. In the areas of maximum variance in speed, it is generally, uh, you can tell on the graph whether the, the, the chart is going up, whether the trace is going up, that there's an issue with this cessation of acceleration. Or if there is a gentle decline and then a steeper decline in speed, there is a variance in the ability to brake quickly and consistently and linearly. So the, the, the speed versus distance graph, especially when you overlay the, the quickest three laps or, the, or two laps, and I certainly wouldn't do more than three because then it gets confusing, will tell you where the next area to work on is. And Ross, Ross Bentley said something that I thought was always a lot of fun. You know, he says, how do you eat an elephant? one bite at a time. And then you have other people that say, <laughs> I mean, it's funny, but, but it's true. So, so the yeah. whole idea is drill down to a, a corner or a corner complex and work on that. So one and, thing, just to pick, on, pick up on that, because in my uh, feeling, my feeling is when you have those, those, those areas of variance in the speed trace, there's the, the that's often from from my experience something to do with the confidence of the driver rather than the mechanics of the car necessarily if there's some consistency somewhere else and then there's a, a one or two areas that are quite uh unusually inconsistent there's there's something it's something to do with maybe the driver is not sure what to You're do absolutely right absolutely right that is absolutely correct and that is really the essence of how to get better. Yeah. Well, there's a, good, a really good friend of mine. Um, unfortunately, he's, he's not with us um, anymore, but he used, to, he used to look after my racing car and um, uh, great, absolutely wonderful guy. And he used to, he used to say it's, um, it's a bit like Dr. Dot. Mm -hmm. Like when you start out, it's like Dr. Dot. You're just like, you're just, just like painting by numbers, you know? That's right. But the, but the, problem, the problem is if you don't know what, the numbers are, or if you don't know where the dots are, you're a mystery, right? So the idea, the idea is that you get this model in your head of where all the dots are, and then you just you drive around to those, and then um, and then see what happens. Basically, if you hit all the dots, that whatever time you get is what you get, and then you can then start experimenting. Then if you can, you know, to go okay. quicker. But <laughs> I think it's wonderful. That's a great way to to do it. But you know, when you have the addition of throttle position traces. That to me is a direct window into the mind of the driver. If there is a uh, relatively swift and sure application of throttle to wide open, then there is good confidence. If there is stepped or uh, a back off of the throttle position after the initial 
build, then that is a crisis in confidence. And, and so the, the pedal position sensor to me is the window into the mind. And as by extension, what you're saying and, and what I agree 100% with is if the speed is not linear and not decisive, then, then that's the area to work on next. It's great. It's really good. Why do you think it is that most people, again, generalizing, folk, <laughs> just go with me on this one, um, but most most people seem to focus on braking. If you say, well, what is it that I need to improve in my driving? I need to improve my braking. <laughs> well, braking is, is, is the largest variable, variably executed skill. So unlike acceleration, where people accelerate fully to the throttle stop, and other than the lateral loading introduced through the steering input, braking is the greatest variable because people brake to what they think the car is capable of, not what it is capable of. And uh-huh. that is nowhere is the anxiety more firmly in place than when you're hurtling towards a brake zone and a corner that if you don't make it, you're going to end up hitting something. So all of a sudden, this sphincter sensor tightens in the driver's seat, drawing up the upholstery in the seat, and and you find yourself braking well early and realizing that, that you re- have to release the brake pressure to roll deeper into the corner in order to get to the turn end point a little bit quicker. And, and that's why I think braking is the hardest thing to, to do. Um, because I don't think most people brake, honestly, hard enough. If there is not a lateral load component on the car when they're trying to shed more than 60, 80, 100 miles an hour, then they, uh, they, they really need to be able to to uh, generate a particular deceleration number. And I don't see that happen very often. And I think that's where you where you can switch to the data, isn't it? And you can show someone and say, look, or, or, or if they're doing it for themselves, they can look at that longitudinal acceleration and say, you know, how well am I doing in this particular corner? Obviously, not all corners are the same, blah, 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 all the, all the usual caveats. But, but in terms of, you know, are you getting the most out of your brakes? That's right. You know, that's a, that's a great place to start. Oh, it's wonderful. It's, it's, it's why that longitudinal G versus distance is so important to me because visually and quickly, mm. I perform that evaluation and say, hey, you're doing really well in this particular break zone, but yet it's clear you're not uh, solidified in your approach on this break zone because it's erratic. It's not as good as one other that you've done. So I often tell drivers, I say, look, make it feel like this. So, so I'm sitting there asking, pleading for these drivers to duplicate the feeling that they get when they demonstrate exemplary performance in the data uh, and say, hey, look, I want you to duplicate what it feels like here, 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 and here. And, and when drivers think about break things down into simple things, uh, equivalencies like that, then all of a sudden they're much more comfortable, uh, you know, getting a more consistent performance. 
Absolutely. And if you can give them that confidence as well by saying, look, you're doing it here. You mm-hmm. just need to do it here as well. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, you can really, because it, it, we're using the data, but the data is a means to an end yeah. in terms of helping the driver improve. It's not, mm, yes. we, we, you know, I, I, my background is a little bit in simulation and, um, you know, I simulating cars going around in circles and stuff like that. And um, we always have this joke. It's like, it's not about getting the simulator to work it's about getting the real car to work and um <laughs> we have, to, have, to, yeah. have to remember that you know it's kind of like it's what the it's it, what i loved about riding handling in, a, in the automated world it was it was so objective everything is so objective you know is this component strong enough for the forces everything's so objective apart from the riding handling sign off which is still subjective a guy goes around and says yes that's okay doesn't matter what the numbers say and it's the same with racing it's the same with racing right you know the guy has to drive the car or the girl has to drive the guy guy in the vertical has to drive the car and they have to feel confident and they have to feel like they know what they're doing and data maybe can be a contribution to that that's exactly right that's right well, I, I love the, the similarities we look at on this. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's a great pleasure to share yeah, with you because I, I agree with uh, everything you're saying and uh, everything, almost everything you post. And, and the, the key really is uh, making this information approachable, making people, incentivizing people to want to adopt this technology and then acquainting it to them in a, at a rate that they will begin to assimilate the information. Yeah. And, yeah. and this whole idea that you promote, that this is a more of a collaborative thing than a uh, talk down to, is really, really important. I think that's where instructors and coaches fail the most is when they don't put their shoe, you know, they don't put their feet in the uh, driver's shoes that they're working with. And instead yeah. of instead of teaching people or guiding people to duplicate their own performance, which is not possible because of the differentials in experience and and uh, you know kinesthetic feel um, and knowledge, it it it, it becomes a, a a more frustrating exercise that way. And I'd rather it be a pleasant exercise. I love it. I want the people that I'm working with to love it. I don't need them to become data analysis analysis folks. That's not the goal here. The goal is to, as you have pointed out repeatedly over and over again, let's pick some simple measures, find out what to work on, what will give us the best return uh, of our investment. So, Absolutely. And, and, you know, you you hit the nail on the head there a couple of times. I think... I'm going, to, I'm going to put two points to you. One is that people, the the history of driver coaching or driver instructing is such that, you know, it's racing drivers who would rather be doing something else, mm-hmm. um, possibly. And that's that's sort of set the culture for it in the sense of this talking down to you. Well, oh, I've got to bother myself talking mm-hmm. to these people who, who've never, I, I don't, I'd really rather not be here. I'd rather be right, racing my own car, but I'm doing this as a means to an end. And so, I so basically. The, sub- the subset of that is like, the, you know, they, if you flip that the other way, if someone's really loves the teaching, then you're going to get a different experience. So, um, but in fairness, though, flipping it to, you know, there's, there's also a confidence thing too, right? And we've talked about it already in this conversation about the more that we learn, the less we know, right? 
And it's the same with the driving, right? So, so even if you're a professional driver, aspiring professional driver, or you're, you're an instructor, you're still like learning, right? And so how there's this almost imposter syndrome for them in the sense of, am I really good enough to teach someone? You know, so maybe that, and then so maybe they take on maybe a slightly more authoritative or, or, or approach just because it's a bit of a shield for them too in terms of how, how they can become a teacher. Uh, maybe there's two points to that. No, I think that's a, I think that's a great, uh, I mean, that's a great observation and another. And fortunately and unfortunately, a very accurate one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> very, very accurate. Um, and, and that, you know, that it, it, it all boils back to what you said in the very opening, which was, you know, who is someone, uh, who tells someone that they are good enough or their knowledge base is good enough to teach or coach? Um, exactly. And, and the, the, the key is as long as you're open to learning, um, as long as you can demonstrate some competence, as long as you are able to integrate many different disciplines into the information that you provide as context for the evaluation of the data, you can do this well. You really can. Yeah, that's, that's it. Well, um, Peter, thank you so much for this conversation. I've re- I was so looking forward to it, and, and it has been absolutely wonderful. Where, where can people find you online? So, so I, uh, I have a couple of things. I have www.peterkrause.net, and that's my old site. I have a commercial site that, that is periodically updated with information and where I am and what I'm doing and um, uh, educational offerings. Um, and then I have a, a commercial site, uh, which is uh, gofasternow.com, G-O-F-A-S-T-E-R-N-O-W.com. And that uh, is being built as we speak. And that is all of the commercial offerings of the six or eight different lines that I carry of equipment. And, and a lot of my time now is responding to inquiries from people who are trying to figure out what system is best for them, um, how they're going to use it. I don't sell anything over the counter without speaking to the person who's purchasing it, uh, principally so that we can uh, go over the pros and cons of each, that I can provide the proper uh, preparation and introduction uh, for their first use, because, you know, we don't want this stuff to become an expensive lap timer. And all too often that does occur. <laughs> it really does. And, yeah, and the I'm, amount of time I've seen that is unbelievable. The people who tell me, yeah, I bought this, um, uh, I'm not going to name any particular brand, but I bought this expensive bit of kit and I've never taken the SD card out of it. Right. And you're like, oh. <laughs> Oh, that's exactly right. You're exactly right. So, so my whole shift is is moving away from coaching, except for people who wish to work with me at at Virginia International Raceway or remotely. Uh, that has become much more popular. People do upload uh, to Dropbox and to OneDrive and Google Drive uh, data and video. I do require video for these remote analyses, and for a fixed fee, uh, I can I can generate. 
pages and pages of information with screenshots, uh, which in essence distill down to no more than three things they need to work on. And that generally will take them a couple of events. But uh, PeterKraus.net, I'm on Facebook uh, under Kraus and Associates and uh, Twitter, Instagram, a vintage pro coach. Uh, And, you know, the pro coach thing was really funny. I got a license plate, uh, a number plate on my truck, uh, on my Ferrari in the beginning that said pro coach. And people were like, oh, do you teach football? Because I look like a football player. (laughs) And and I said, no, no, no. I teach people how to uh, race cars. And, and drive cars quickly. And so my handle in a number of the forums that I'm active in uh, is ProCoach. And, and so that's sort of reflective of, of the seminal connection I have with the, the beginning of the club level uh, coaching profession. So That's wonderful. That's, that's a wonderful story. This has been wonderful. Maybe we need to do it again. I was going to say, you know, it would be lovely to have you back on the show sometime if, you, if you're up for it. I am. Anytime. <laughs> Fantastic. Right. Well, thank you. And, um, you know, take, take care. I appreciate it very much. And, and you stay well. And uh, wishing everyone who's, who's listening to this podcast to, uh, to be well and to get out on track. What an absolute pleasure to have Peter on the show. What did you think? Wasn't it fascinating that whilst the premise of the show is around data and analytics and measurement and numbers, we probably spent most time talking about the driver and applying that in the real world. After all, that's what this is all about. Data is just that means to an end. Another tool in your toolbox that enables you to improve the performance by being able to reduce the guesswork and improve the certainty. Absolutely fascinating conversation and so lovely to hear his perspectives from someone who has so much experience at doing this. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and visit us at yourdatadriven.com.